You're listening to the Jolly Swagman Podcast. Here's your host, Joe Walker. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, swagmen and swagettes, welcome back to the show. This is an historic episode. For not only do I have a very special guest, it is also that guest's first and so far only properly long-form podcast conversation. My guest is Katalin Kariko. Katalin, or Kati, is a Hungarian-American biochemist and one of the few people instrumental to the development of mRNA technology. Now, mRNA technology obviously became famous with the coronavirus vaccines, but it has a long history, which we discuss in this episode. mRNA technology also promises a new era in medicine, with vaccines on the cards for a panoply of viruses, as well as the tantalizing prospect of cancer vaccines. Like any scientific breakthrough, mRNA vaccines were built on a bunch of smaller innovations, each of which was necessary, but not sufficient to the overall technology. Many people contributed their piece to the puzzle in the case of mRNA. Among them are Robert Malone, who first realized it might be possible to treat RNA as a drug, Then there was Paul Craig and Doug Melton, who championed the use of synthetic RNA. There was Derek Rossi, one of the earliest scientists to recognize the therapeutic potential of Carty's work, who also co-founded Moderna. There was Peter Cullis, whose revolutionary use of lipid nanoparticles facilitated the delivery of mRNA into cells. And of course, there's Drew Weissman, Cuddle and Carico's longtime collaborator. But in this constellation of contributors, the star that shines brightest, I dare say, is Cuddlin Carico herself. If slash when a Nobel Prize is awarded for mRNA, Kati is the strongest contender to be among the laureates. Kati's story is exceptional, not just for the scientific achievement, but also the adversity she battled along the way. You may or may not be shocked to learn her grant applications were repeatedly rejected to the point where she was demoted and given a pay cut by her university in 1995. And yet Kati is even more remarkable for the way she handled these setbacks. And this conversation gives you an insight into her optimism and resilience. This episode is a little different in style to my typical approach, as this is Kati's debut in the long-form podcast arena. About half the conversation is biographical in nature. I traveled to Philadelphia to record the conversation with Kati in person. As always, if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for future guests, you can reach me on Twitter. My handle is at Joseph N. Walker, or by email, my address is joe at the jspod.com. Please enjoy my conversation with Katalin Carico. Katalin Carico, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for everything. Uh, so, so today I have three goals. I firstly want people to hear your story because it's unique and inspiring. Uh, secondly, I want to talk about mRNA technology because it's fascinating and important. And thirdly, I want to talk about some meta-scientific issues as well. Uh, but let's start with your background. So you were born in Hungary. Uh, tell me what life was like growing up there in the Soviet era. Oh, from Soviet era, you know, you don't feel that. You you have your family, you have your neighbors, your school, your local um, environment, and you you 
you just go to school, you do whatever you are doing uh, as kids and uh, and uh, in the family. And I have a very happy childhood. So we, we had a small house. We had uh, two rooms, but we used just one during the winter because it was, you know, one you could afford to uh, heat up. And... Um, and uh, we had a big garden. We had animals like pigs and chickens, and we had vegetable garden. We had. We, I have a older sister. She's three years older, and we had our little garden. We could put the seed ourselves, and this we uh, attended those gardens. We had um, flower gardens, so it was like a, a Aden there. It was. I was very happy as uh, growing up, and. And my father was butcher. My mother, um, she worked at home, and then later she was bookkeeper. And um, we had we had a simple life. You know, we didn't have running waters. We had to run to the street to get uh, drinking water, and so we carried home. And you know, we did not have refrigerators. We, you know, we put everything in the well, done oh. to cool it down, and. Um, so it was, but everybody in the neighborhood was like that. And you, we didn't have television set. So, you know, it first, at least the first 10 years in my life. So that it was a, a little adobe house with reed roof. And uh, so I went to school and I enjoyed that. And uh, it was, uh, I was very happy. I didn't realize this until I started researching for this conversation, but the word stress wasn't applied to humans until the 1930s. Previously, it was only used by physicists. And it was first applied to to humans by the Hungarian endocrinologist Hans Selye. Shale. Shale. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> and in high school, you read a book uh, about stress by Hans Shale. Can you tell me how that how that influenced your thinking? Uh, why was it so impactful? So, indeed, uh, we actually wrote a letter to him. Ah. And he responded, and we get so excited. And because he was um, born in Hungary, so his book about stress was translated to Hungarian. And so in the 60s, you could uh, read uh, his book. And uh, we discuss in the biologic class, and um, so we did understood that um, yeah, understand that uh, um, stress can kill you, but only how you perceive. Mm-hmm. So you have to learn to handle the stress. And uh, what he said also in his book that without stress, life is meaningless. You wouldn't get up this morning if you don't have this anticipation, excitement that we will talk today. So you need that kind of uh, happiness and happy, this is also stress, but it is a good stress. And Mm -hmm. how you would, you know, when you are kicked out from your job to see the good goodness of it, you know, but you have to learn and it is a practice. So we practice and we talk in the school about how we can uh, um, focus on things that we can do. So that's what the problem with people that... You know, they focus things that they cannot change. <clears throat> and they also, it was important that the conversation has to be about what um, I can do, not blame others. And uh, so it is, um, it was very helpful. Without <laughs> reading that book, would you have been as good at handling stress? I mean, I feel like your, your personality yeah. is very optimistic, naturally. 
Yeah, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't talk really? to you. I would not reach that because it was so critical. What uh, I can see even today that people are comparing themselves to the others immediately. Now, so don't do that. Yeah. Don't don't worry about that other person works less and uh, promoted and get higher. You cannot change that. But the people paying attention to this, they get distracted and they are not focusing what they can change, you know, doing the research. Yeah. And they are blaming. They blame their children, their husband, wife, the neighbors, uh, somebody. And then you cannot change those people. You know, they, they wish that they would do that and that. No, you have to always end every uh, conversation in your mind is that what I can do. Mm-hmm. So that's that's very helpful. And if people would learn this, they would live a much better life. For example, the grudge that people have against somebody. So many people ask how I feel now that, you know, no, I can tell those people who were not nice to me. I mean, I thank people who were not nice to me because without them, I wouldn't be here because uh, hardship and those things is uh, forming your personality much better than if somebody, you know, prepare yours and you just have to walk and easy way. So if you struggle, you learn, you know, yeah. many things. And and so that um, this uh, also people, you know, that who were not nice to me made me, you know, work harder what I have. And then that's how you have to uh, process. So mm-hmm. even in actually in school, in high school, we are talking about reading this book, my a uh, high school teacher told me who did, he didn't like me. And he told me after I gr- graduated, get the highest mark, he said that he knows somebody at the university and he will make sure that I will not be accepted. <laughs> so it is, at first you could see that, oh, this is a mean and bad news, yeah? But if you say that, okay, how I perceive it, that's how important. I perceive that I have to work harder so I have to be the number one. So no question about that. I will be accepted. If he says, I will arrange that you will be accepted. I, you know, sit back and work hard, less harder. Yeah. <laughs> so that you have to see in that, okay, he made me work harder. Yeah. And then you also learn every time you learn that not everybody's rooting for me. And that was, you know, your last of the life is there. So not everybody wants you to succeed and you have to uh, think about that so that all of these things you have to practice to think about, okay, what is, what did I learn from it? Because even the meanest person to tell you anything, you learn, I won't do that. I won't say to anybody else because it's hurtful. So mm-hmm. I learn and then you move on. So that's, that's, that's the simple philosophy. I don't know, maybe there is such philosophy exists, but that's if you live your life that you are so much happier. Yeah. It sounds, it sounds a little bit like stoicism, which is a bit of a podcast <laughs> cliche, but I won't go into that, but it's a beautiful perspective. Why, why was that teacher uh, so mean to you? Was he just a bad guy or did you do something to no, piss him off? <laughs> you know, that there are always people that, uh, you know, they don't like if somebody too successful, because mm. even in a, um, Elementary school, I already competed in uh, nationally, inter, in, in nationally in Hungary in a biology mm. competition. And came third. It, yeah, I was third best. <laughs> yes, in exactly. the whole country. I was yeah. third best in the country. It was a whole week compas- competition, for example. And um, 
And so I was uh, in high school, I was writing different essays. I always were very uh, inspired and competitive and, you know, not everybody likes that. And uh, some people have a power that they can, you know, crush you and they, they try to use it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you just uh, don't have to uh, think about too much. So <laughs> if that book was so important to you, I guess I'm wondering why you didn't go to study psychology or something like that. Um, you know, I, I like biology. And um, so it is also very important in science that you, you focus on something, try to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, I know that we might talk about later about what is in, in science. But what I could see is that as long as I am focusing on that science part and try to solve it, you know, me and and the and the problem and then solving it and that's how it is. Mm -hmm. But then you you want to have more people, so you apply for more money, grants, and other things, and then you are moving away because now that if you get promoted, you get even more position to get more colleagues and more money, and then finally the goal is this promotion to get bigger team, and then what was originally the goal to understand something became a tool to reach that goal mm. to get this uh, promotion and the tenure position and whatnot. So that, but there, you know, you are not in control because somebody will decide. Mm. And, and this, I think that many people uh, who gave up job during the pandemic, those who were tenured position, what they realized that, oh, I am just a manager I am in the desk writing grants, writing papers, and those are having fun in the lab, you know, and they mm. miss that. Mm. Yeah, I have lots of questions about that, <laughs> which uh, which I'll ask you a bit later. But um, so you became interested in science at school. You did exceptionally well in that, that week-long biology competition you mentioned. And then you graduate high school, um, you go to university, uh, you you study biology, biology at university yeah. mm -hmm. and then um, you start your PhD program in 1978 and you start work on RNA that same year. But that kind of happened by chance, right? Could you tell me that story? Yes, yes. So, so I might mention also to getting the university was very difficult because right. from the whole country just like uh, they invited for the oral uh, exam 300 and invited... 30, and then accepted 15. So, you know, it is, was very difficult. Wow. And then because my parents had, uh, you know, just elementary school education, I get a chance to, during the summer, mm. to um, participate at the university in a, a program for the underprivileged children so mm. that it was not first time in my life I enter a university, but yeah, during wow. the summer. Yeah. And it was very important, uh, you know, the university... Uh, initiated this kind of uh, program for the children. Because oh, your dad your dad did six years of elementary, your mom did eight years. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, so nobody was high school educated in no. our family. And uh, so it was important, uh, this kind of uh, action. And uh, so I, at the university, I, I went to Seged. It is a southern uh, part of Hungary, this 
University City because uh, the Biological Research Center was planned to build there and started or opened in 1972. So in 1973, I decided that I will go to this city because there is the Biological Research Center. And that was my dream to work Mm -hmm. at that place. And um, uh, so when I started at the university, I I mean, we had early morning, like seven o'clock, started in the morning and then eight o'clock. We had so many different classes and even Saturday we had classes so that it was like, uh, analytical chemistry, physical chemistry, biochemistry, and all of this microbiology, and all of we learn everything. Mm-hmm. It is uh, not like here in the United States. And and but then I went also to the research center, the biological research center, as a student, and uh, um, I ended up in the uh, lipid team, which you know seems like a boring thing, and. Um, then I spent the summer actually in a fishery institute collecting uh, fat from fish to identify when we feed them with different chow, different material, that what, they, what their fat looks. Okay. And uh, so this uh, working with lipids, what happened is um, one day uh, two colleagues from this biochemistry section of this biological research center wanted to make liposome and they needed uh, uh, phospholipids and uh, and they came to our lipid team to help and uh, then i participated when we isolated this uh, phospholipid we needed phospholipid but we are were behind uh, the iron curtain mm-hmm. and that fraction which you can buy for 10 deutschmark <laughs> it was uh, not available for us so we had to isolate. We looked at an old recipe and we, 1942, how to isolate this phospholipid from co-brain. So it came handy that my father was butcher. And, you know, when I look at the brain, I wouldn't say, oh, this is disgusting. And we did like a five days, you know, when different fraction we took away with using different kind of organic solvent, acetone, ether, chloroform, and so on. And we get this fraction of this phospholipid. And and I was so excited. And I worked later on with this um, uh, Eva Kondoroshi and Ernő Duda. And we worked to make liposomes. And we put DNA in it and delivered to the cells. They have done this in the end of the 70s, you know, when... Uh, uh, they delivered like a viral particle to a cell, which otherwise you couldn't infect because there were no receptor on it and delivered. And they did so many interesting things. And mm. it, uh, you know, was for me, was very exciting. And uh, just one day, um, you know, Thomas walked in and then um, my supervisor mentioned that Kati uh, is finishing and she she wants to make her PhD. And Yenu said, oh, okay. I am in the RNA lab. She can come and work with me. That's how it was. So then, okay, RNA. (laughs) When you got interested in RNA, PCR hadn't been discovered yet. That wasn't discovered until the mid-1980s. And maybe in in a moment you can explain what PCR is. But without PCR, you couldn't create synthetic RNA. So why were you so excited about RNA at that stage before synthetic RNA had been created? Um, I started to work in the RNA lab in 1978 and the prior year, 77, 
uh, Ian Kerr in London discovered that there is a short RNA molecule which might be responsible for the interferon-mediated antiviral effect. Mm-hmm. The interferon is a cytokine which was known that interferes with the viral replication. And um, Yanuk came actually from the pharmaceutical industry to this uh, research center, and he he thought that we need an antiviral compound, and he had connection to the industry, and they sponsored our research. So we will develop an antiviral compound. This was a three nucleotide containing sh- short RNA molecule linked with a two prime, five prime, which is unusual linkage, and we have to make it enzymatically. We made it chemically. And uh, I also set up the antiviral testing lab there. And uh, it is interesting that even later in my life, I always work with colleagues who are not expert what I had to do. Everybody was here, organic chemist, and I was the biologist, had to set up the assays, had to understand what making, uh, you know, this small molecule biologically and later on life also, everybody was expert on a different field. And maybe, maybe this is how, you know, invention is coming and novelty because you educate each other and then you come up with something that you wouldn't as individual would think about. Mm. So anyway, this RNA molecule was an exciting thing and, um, and uh, we did a good progress. The problem was the delivery so that in animal study, it was not uh, feasible. There were, we couldn't uh, wrap it up this uh, small molecule to deliver inside the cell, and we lost our support mm. from the industry. But, um, you know, when you work with RNA in the, you know, beginning of, uh, you know, in the, I mean, end of 70s, yeah, and beginning 80s, I mean, you learn how to label, how to, different enzyme you work with, and it was just uh, a lot of knowledge you gather with this, and, and that it stays with you. You know, that uh, this molecule, which makes this 2 prime, 5 prime molecule, you know, this is an enzyme we have in our bodies. Mm-hmm. This, this is also important for the COVID. They uh, identified that those children who get seriously sick, they had a problem. They did not have enough of that enzyme. They had mutation in it. So, you know, from I follow all, all of this uh, field I ever worked what is going on today. And so I can see that those important molecules and understanding is very critical. But anyway, I enjoyed working with these RNA molecules. And, um, and uh, of course, uh, when I uh, learned that I cannot um, uh, work further in this uh, institute, I tried to find another place where they are working with these molecules, first mm. in Europe, but... You know, they couldn't get a, a stipend as a postdoc and then finally ended up here in mm. Philadelphia. Professor Suadonik was also interested to work in this 2 prime, 5 prime linked antiviral mm. molecule. Yeah. I'll come back to your move to the US, but I, I guess I have another question about what you were thinking during your PhD program. So you were originally interested in using RNA to develop therapies. Had you... Mm begun thinking about vaccines at that stage? No, no, I was not that (laughs) visionary. I was just excited that, um, you know, learning virology. I mean, every time I I read this uh, book, David Baltimore wrote, and I said, oh my God, these viruses are so smart. 
of course, you know, it is just because evolution, you know, they yeah. <laughs> not they figure out how to uh, get around our immune system, but because they evolved this way. But, uh, you know, I learned a lot of biology. I work with uh, working with RNA and and uh, so it was that's uh, was exciting uh, for me. So tell me about the big move to America in 1985. <laughs> yeah, so at my 30th birthday, I learned that I have to leave the, you know, I have six months left and then I have to leave the institute and I have six months to find another job. This, is, this was my first uh, time when I was um, kicked out. And, and so again, I every time I say <laughs> that several times later it happened, if, if I wouldn't be kicked out that many times, I wouldn't be here because it is important that, you know, don't take personally, don't take that, you know, somebody is deciding on that, that you are, you know, a loser. What is important, what you do next. Yeah? So that's came America. <laughs> and uh, it was not easy because... Uh, 85, we are in still a communist Hungary and they, um, to prevent um, defection, so they uh, only allow my family, my two and a half years old daughter, my husband and me to move to America to have $50 for Susan, my daughter, 50 for my husband and me. They said, ask from your employer money. So with $100, a small family would leave Hungary Mm. and to come America and how, next day what we will how we will live you know mm. that's uh, they try to this way to limit mm. movement and so that's how we started and you actually came over with a little more cash than that because you were able to <laughs> sell your car on the, the black market. How does that work? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, we had a Russian car, Lado, which we could sell. Officially, we just have to change the money of the black market because there were students from Arabic countries that and uh, I could uh, exchange. Actually, it was he didn't have dollar, he had a pound. And so I exchanged and we get something uh, thousand dollar and eight eight hundred pounds and it was like one thousand two hundred dollar equivalent and and you know in Hungary you were not the Hungarian currency was not convertible and uh, and you were you couldn't go and purchase freely uh, from your foreign Hungarian currency to dollar so and you are not if you somebody would give you money currency, foreign currency, like a dollar, you have to go to the bank and give it to them. And you, they will give you whatever Hungarian currency. Mm -hmm. You are not allowed to main, to have it. And so uh, it was against the law. But um, <laughs> we have to live somehow. And so this $1,000 was like a, a lot of money. Later when, you know, it turned out that <laughs> how we hide it to the teddy, Susan teddy bears, because it was, you know... <laughs> Smuggled, she smuggled out. <laughs> so uh, it was Susan's, we can blame Susan. Yeah, yeah. Susan <laughs> smuggled the money. Other Hungarians also sent me letters and emails that how did, where did they hide? Everybody had to come out with some extra money. You know, you yeah. just cannot come to a family yeah. to America with hundred dollars. Yeah. So did you sew it into the teddy bear? So oh. I put in and wrapped it up and then I... Uh, stitch it back and, uh, and then we watched her that you know at the airport <laughs> yeah, don't let to go make of sure that bear. don't leave that bear there 
<laughs> did she know, did she know the money was in it, or was she too no, young? Uh, yeah, she was two and a half oh, years wow. old. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so at this point, I actually want to um, kind of digress from your story and talk a little bit about the science because I think mm-hmm. people will need some basic understanding to then follow the rest of the the discoveries that happen over the next few decades from when you land in America. And maybe I, I don't know, Kati, but I, um, by the way, so people in America say Katie, but mm-hmm. Hungary, you would say Kati, right? Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Correct. I'll say, I'll say Kati. <laughs> um, so maybe, maybe a nice framework to kind of frame this, you know, microbiology 101 section of the conversation would be Jim Watson's central dogma of molecular biology, which is that DNA makes RNA makes protein and it, the information is unidirectional. So it, it flows in that direction only. Um, DNA and proteins never actually meet and that's why they need messenger RNA, which is a particular type of RNA. There are actually other types yes. of RNA. Why don't we, and I apologize because I know this is like so basic, but but maybe it would be helpful if we just quickly go through each of those things. So Firstly, could you explain DNA? Uh, DNA is a storage of information in our body. Every cell in our body has it, and uh, all uh, free-living organisms and um, and even viruses can have DNA. Mm-hmm. And um, and it contains information and uh, uh, con- uh, composed from four basic nucleotides. And the order of it define that what kind of uh, uh, protein they are coding for. And the DNA is quite stable. You know that you can isolate DNA from dinosaurs. There's still, you know, s- mm. sequences are there. And um, so this is a storage of mm-hmm. the information. So when people, you know, when paleontologists excavate dinosaur bones, sometimes they can recover the DNA but they can never recover the RNA, which is very unstable. It self-destructs. So to talk a little bit about that. So there is a very small difference between DNA and RNA. Mm-hmm. The major one is that the DNA is double-stranded. The RNA is single-stranded. But beside that, the uh, chemical composition is just the hydroxyl and extra hydroxyl is present on the sugar part of mm-hmm. this RNA, which makes it very labile. It is, you don't even need an enzyme to cut it up. Mm-hmm. If you just store in a room temperature, sooner or later, your RNA is degraded. Mm. And um, so this is this is the role also in the uh, body. And, and that was the reason. Actually, from the 50s, they already were looking for this messenger RNA and they couldn't find it because it was so labile. So when 1961, mm. two papers published in Nature, the word labile was in the title in both of those papers, ah. labile. And the messenger RNA is, as as we said, a particular type of RNA. You also have like tRNA mm. um, and then you have some... Ribosomal guess, RNA, actually. Ribosomal right. RNA, 80-90% in our RNA, in our body, is ribosomal and they are part of the protein synthesis machinery. So, yeah, they, there is DNA. The process is uh, making an RNA is transcription and those are performed by... RNA polymerases, enzymes which can polymerize makes RNA. And the RNA is going to the ribosomes, and this is the protein synthesis factory, 
And then the tRNAs, the transfer RNAs carrying the amino acid, and then they are reading the sequence and they putting one amino acid after the other as the sequence dictates, and you have the protein. So proteins are made of amino acid, yes. and DNA is made of and RNA is made of nucleic acid. Very good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> proteins are, as you said, manufactured in the ribosomes, which mm-hmm. sit in a particular part of the cytoplasm in the cell it can float yeah. around a lot of places it can be oh, okay okay and dna is lo- no, uh, located only in the nucleus if it is eukaryotic cells yes eukaryotic it is in cells. the nucleus yeah uh, <laughs> and there are uh, correct me if i'm wrong but there are upwards of about 30,000 types of protein in our cells I, I don't know. Uh, many. It, it, so yeah, there are many, many because many. there are, you know. Yeah. And I guess the key point is that protein is like the functional unit of the cell. Yes, yes. Yeah. The different proteins, because those proteins could be enzymes, generate lipids and other components of our bodies, our body. So over the years, people have tried to create therapies at the kind of the beginning and the end of that chain. So we've had like gene-based therapies focused on DNA. We've had, well, I guess like Genentech pioneered protein-based therapies from the 1980s. I have to say that even before, because 100 right. years ago was uh, insulin was introduced. That was, uh, you know, the oh. protein replacement because there were, you know, the type 1 diabetes patient yeah. were... And those those proteins were isolated mm-hmm. at the beginning. So, hundred years ago, they isolated from uh, animal tissue or different kind of s- different sources, and then this is what they used. And in the nineteen eighty two, you know, come the recombinant protein mm-hmm. when when they could make hungry, um, when they could make a human uh, protein by bacteria or or different uh, cell mm-hmm. factories. Those were recombinant protein. Mm-hmm. And that started the uh, 82. Mm-hmm. Okay, I see. So people had tried things with DNA-based therapies, protein-based therapies, but RNA-based therapies were very, very difficult, maybe even considered impossible when you were working on RNA. The, even the DNA started, um, listen... 1980, 1990 started the Human Genome Project. Yeah. And when they started Mm. to identify the genes and the mutation in it and identify that responsible for certain disease, the thought was in the 1990s that, oh, we just delivered the correct genes and everything will be fine. Mm -hmm. So that was Mm -hmm. the focus on, I mean, the Human Genome Project was 13 years, 1990. You remember uh, Bill Clinton Mm. announced that Mm. we know, know the yeah. Uh, human genome. And uh, so that uh, they try to focus on that, but, um, you know, it was not uh, easy. They thought that we need permanent changes back to normal. Interestingly, maybe the in these days, it seems now that the, um, the promise of the gene therapy based on DNA actually may be fulfilled by RNA because came the CRISPR-Cas9 uh, mm. technology and uh, you could change the genome with the very simple enzymes, which will recognize certain uh, area of the genes mm. 
and that is delivered as an mRNA. It is critical that it will be short-lived and just make the change and everything disappears. Uh, so that's an exciting time what yeah. we have now. Yeah. Okay, so to to return to your story, so you you arrive in the US in 1985 and you're still obviously really excited about uh, RNA. When, when did you become excited about mRNA in particular? Uh, at Temple University, I work uh, three years and we, we work different kind of RNA there. Actually, we did a human trial uh, together with Hahnemann University and we used double-stranded RNA to treat the HIV patient. Because you know that 1986, that was a major viral problem, you mm. know, that uh, infection and then was uh, no assay, no test. It was very difficult that time, but then we used uh, double-stranded RNA and... Um, and then I worked one year at Bethesda, very basic molecular biology I did. Then. And then uh, uh, when I was reading there day and night, because my family was lived in Philadelphia and I worked in uh, Bethesda, and uh, I was entertained this uh, thought that uh, people try to use anti-sense RNA. And I said, why not using the sense RNA and deliver as a therapy? And I start to read about that, what can be done. And it was came very handy one day. This guy walked in and he said he has this um, uh, lipofectin they just developed and it is can deliver easily nucleic acid to the cell. And then I said, oh, that's what I need. Because this liposome, what I did in Hungary, was very tedious, you know, the somes and uh, very complicated and very fragile. And so I thought, Oh, that's it. Mm -hmm. I need this uh, lipofectin. And then I apply for the new job at the University of Pennsylvania. And then I proposed uh, to my colleague who hired me that we will use messenger RNA and we will do it because I was reading that it, we can make mRNA. And because we are in 89 and 84, 85 was two publication came out from um, Harvard University and um, <clears throat> Douglas Melton yeah, and Paul Krieg, they describe that you can use uh, phage uh, RNA polymerase, which has very high fidelity, very efficient, very simple way to generate RNA. And so I said, okay, we are set. <laughs> Love it. So, <clears throat> um, so in 89, you got the position at, at the University of Pennsylvania. So you wanted to make RNA, put it into a cell, instruct the cell to make proteins that it wouldn't otherwise make. Yeah. Um, and you set up an experiment with a machine called a gamma counter <laughs> to detect the protein. I mean, um, so I, I went to cardiology. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So my colleague, uh, Elliot Barnetan, he was going to the seeing patient and the catheterizing and so on again. And then I was trying to educate him about RNA and he tried to educate me about the blood vessel and the coagulation and what problem we have there, what problem we have to solve. And uh, so his interest was in this uh, urokinase receptors, which can uh, bind to a, <clears throat> a molecule. This is used to uh, solve the clot clots, which... Uh, unintentionally form in our blood vessel and cause, you know, uh, heart attack and other. And then if we would have more of this uh, uh, 
molecules there, let's say, when they do bypass surgeries, because that's what they also did there. And so they have a blood vessel in, in, in hand, and then they try to, you know, insert, and then we can have some RNA put through on it. And what this RNA should be, this uh, urokinase receptor, that would be beneficial. And uh, so I cloned and made RNA for urokinase receptor, and um, my colleague made uh, radio-labeled urokinase and to test that whether this um, uh, mRNA, I, which codes for urokinase, I deliver to the cell, whether they make functional receptor. And to measure it, you know, we had to use this radioactive material and to see whether it binds or not. Why it is so critical, this urokinase receptor? Because it had to be, this, this is a protein, had to be so much modified. So many things had to be happened to be functional. Mm. And voila, you deliver the RNA and somehow the cell knew what to do. <laughs> Put there all of these sugars in it, which needed, process the other end of the carboxy terminal end of this protein and and linked and it was functional. We were, you know, watching this yes. <laughs> gamma <laughs> counter that, you know, printed out slowly this result and we could see that, okay, it works. So at that time we thought that, oh, okay, we can use ex vivo, like on, on a blood vessel, on cells, deliver RNA and uh, uh, get a beneficial protein overexpressed for for a certain period of short period of time. So that's when you first <laughs> realized you could use mRNA to get cells to create protein. Mm. But after that, you kind of were in the. I guess I'm I'm sort of exaggerating here, but in the wilderness for many years, you suffered a series of career setbacks. Could you talk about some of those stories? So we were doing this uh, progress, and uh, I have to say from 1989, in the first two years I worked at University of Pennsylvania, every month I wrote a, a grant to get money to establish myself. I had a faculty position as a, a research assistant professor, which is non-tenured position, but, you know, I could have my own lab. But I didn't get any of those. I uh, tried to propose the RNA how I would use circular RNA. Actually, in these days, they think it is a new thing. Of 92, I or 93, I already had <clears throat> grant, which was rejected. <laughs> um, I proposed that, and I did a circular RNA. <clears throat> anyway, so I was um, uh, working hard to do the experiments, get, generating more data, but, uh, you know, it was uh, not sufficient uh, um, they were critical about that the RNA is labile, it wouldn't be useful, and I don't have enough uh, data. Sometimes they question that I don't have enough knowledge uh, to do these experiments. So that, uh, you know, I was um, always listening because, you know, share what I can do, not that they should accept my proposal. That's otherwise you would think they are dumb. No, they don't understand how great idea is if they... If I conclude that they don't understand, I have to say yes, because maybe I did not explain well. And so that I improve my writing, my colleagues look at there, you know, and, and did more experiments. And uh, But uh, at the university, there was a rule that if five years you are not establishing yourself in a faculty, you don't get money, then then you have to be promoted or kicked out. 
and demote, remove from the faculty. And that's what happened to me in 1995. So, uh, And that was a difficult time for a couple of other reasons. You were diagnosed with cancer. Your, um, your husband got stuck in Hungary <laughs> with his visa. Yeah, I, I, I really, I had lumps in my breast and... And then uh, the same time when we went to the hospital, we get this that uh, my husband had to go back to for his green card, and and we didn't read carefully. And he he two days later he left. I was here, and then uh, um, he couldn't return because um, what happened is that when I was in age visa, he was still working and paid the tax, and they looked at there he was not supposed to work. And so if we wouldn't pay the tax, they wouldn't see it, but we were always honest. And so he was stuck in Hungary for uh, five months and he came back in May. He left in January and, uh, you know, we just purchased the house. We had to pay <laughs> the mortgage and it was like, uh, I, I just couldn't rest. I had to, uh, you know, find a new job <laughs> and um, it was very difficult time and that's what uh, happened that uh, one of the uh, student who was student prior in the lab, um, medical student, by that time he worked in a resident in neurosurgery. And he could convince, his name is David Langer, is uh, convinced the chairman that neurosurgery needs a molecular biologist. You know, it was just so unbelievable how he could convince him, but he said, okay, and they gave me laboratory, they gave me salary. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's how 17 years I worked on this uh, bench there. Yeah, because <laughs> I was surprised reading some of your papers. It has you as um, being in Penn's yeah, neuro <laughs> Department of Neurosurgery. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, even the famous 2005 <laughs> Yes, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, 17 years. All 17 the way. years. Yeah, 17 wow. years I worked there. And um, so... Um, Again, with David, uh, we, David Langer, we try to solve different problems. And now I am working with somebody who's going there every day, operate on patient and comes back with the, what kind of problem facing, what he can do and what I can do and what we can do together. So maybe yeah. innovation is coming this way. So sometimes mm. you have a huge lab and you can investigate a problem in many different directions and then you uh, advance uh, knowledge, science but also that uh, you are talking to maybe just top person and uh, you talk to each other and then realizing that together what you can accomplish. So that sounds like an extremely difficult period. Yes. Yeah, so that uh, people usually say that you, Kati, you suffer so much. I have to say that I was uh, always very happy. Mm. Uh, in the laboratory, I was at the bench all the way, I was 58 years old. I did my own experiments. I cultured the bacteria, isolated plasmid, made the RNA, cultured the cells, transfected, measured. I did every part. So put the gels, a lot of gels, and, and uh, analyzed the data, came home, reading, writing, doing all of these things. And um, I felt that I was in full control. I control. I, I was in the laboratory. I know what to do. I was reading something in the evening at home. I realized... Oh, maybe that's provide explanation what I am seeing. And okay, I can do it. Oh, I can do it. And next day I went in and then I was just doing that experiment. Mm. And so it it is very empowering and, and the discovery that uh, many technical problems I am solving, it is a success. You know, I didn't get the 
grants, which, you know, the basic R01 grant in the United States, uh, you establish, a, you can establish a, a laboratory, but but I, I had a lot of happiness. You, these discoveries and the full control over the experiments, uh, you know, is very empowering and, and exciting that, um, and you have an understanding of how things are and, and then you are reading articles not like, you know, you start to read an article and after the second sentence, you don't even know what I am doing, why I am doing this. But you are looking for something and that is so exciting, mm. you know, that this hunt, <laughs> yeah. because you have a hunch that something is happening. Have you ever calculated what percentage of your grant applications were successful? <laughs> no, it has to be 0.0 <laughs> something because I have one grant when we established after our discoveries, we established the company and then the first grant we uh, submitted for small business grant to the uh, US government, NIH, then we received that grant. That one, mm -hmm. the only time I was... Uh, uh, um, PI on a grant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So fast forwarding to 1998, this mm -hmm. was a, a big kind of turning point or moment in your career because you're standing at a Xerox machine, a photocopier at the University of Pennsylvania, and you meet Drew Weissman. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell yeah. me that story? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, 1997 or 1998 oh, or something like that. No, I, I don't remember. No, we, we don't remember either that it was 97 oh, really? or 98. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it is critical because in from 2002, I never went to the Xerox machine. I downloaded everything digitally. So thanks God that the progress oh, was not wow. that <laughs> great yeah, yeah. in certain fields because otherwise I never meet him. <laughs> because, of course, digitally is uh, much easier to uh, download papers. But that time I have science, nature, you know, I paid for and yeah. um, and then I went and this Xeroxing, you know, and uh, archiving the papers and s system set up for that and so on, so on. So, and then I noticed this uh, new guy on the on the floor there that he's also occupying that Xerox machine, <laughs> my favorite one. And uh, in the 97, 98, I already work in neurosurgery, but I they don't have there where you know, Xerox machine. So I still went back to Department of Medicine, which is just the four floor up. <laughs> Probably I knew the password for the Xerox machine and then I used that. So I started to talk to this new guy. I asked him, you know, what he was doing. And of course, I always brag about, you know, I am doing and so on. And, and um, so, he, but he's a much more quiet person and, and he told me that he he was um, uh, working at uh, Antoni Fauci's lab, which told me nothing because I <laughs> Antoni Fauci was not in the television set like in the <laughs> last two years or prior to that, and um, and he was working in HIV research and he wants to develop a, a vaccine, a prophylactic or a therapeutic. I never even heard a therapeutic vaccine, but. And and uh, so that's when we started actually educating each other because I told that I am making RNA and I can do anything. And um, and then so he said, oh, he would be interested to test out the mRNA as a vaccine. And I made the RNA. And um, meanwhile, I learned the immunology from Drew, Drew Weissman. 
Because when I learned, we understood that what our system is, how our immune system is working, that recognize that something is foreign. Mm. Oh, no. Drew told me, oh, bovine serum albumin you would inject, your body is doing nothing. He said that you need danger signal. That's now I was understood. You need a adjuvant. You need the, to tell something to your immune system. Hey, that's dangerous. You have to make immune response against that. And so that's how we slowly educate or sometimes not that slowly educated each other. You know, I learned immunology and yeah. we learned RNA. I made the RNA and he was very happy. In 2000, we published uh, about this uh, gag, uh, HIV-specific protein that we delivered to the human dendritic cells, which was uh, discovered not long before that. And this is the most professional human uh, immune cells, which uh, uh, he could make a culture and test out. And this he delivered and then he... Everything was great because not only you delivered the protein, protein generated from this mRNA, and uh, but also this activated everything he wanted, and a lot of inflammatory molecule was made, and that made me, you know, sit back. That when I realized he was happy with all of these uh, activities, but I was not happy because I did not want uh, to have any inflammatory molecule. I, my goal was to make therapeutic protein coding RNA. Mm. And um, so then we started to think together, why why the RNA I am making is different than what is inside the cell or, or not different at all. The reason why it's so inflammatory is because we are putting from outside to uh, immune cells. And this RNA is not supposed to be outside, you know, outside the cell. And yeah. so that suggested the idea that, oh, we should test out. We should isolate RNA from our, you know, human cells and, and see that when we put on this uh, special immune cells, human identity cell, whether they respond the same way mm. when we put our in vitro made, uh, the RNA made in the tube. And... Um, we never thought that we will identify something is not immunogenic. We at that point we thought that maybe we expected that all of them will activate the this and generate immune response, and uh, isolated you know transfer RNA and ribosomal RNA, bacteria, different bacterial RNA, and then we just put on the cells, and then we found that uh, this uh, transfer RNA did not induce any immune response. And that made us thought that, could it be that uh, this uh, transfer RNA, which is very well known, the most, uh, contain the most nucleoside modified, uh, contains the most uh, modified nucleosides, maybe that makes them non-immunogenic. So that, that was the thought generated. And of course, you know, the next question immediately was, how the hell we will prove that? How we will make... Uh, uh, RNA containing modification, nucleoside modification. So to summarize, uh, so you and Drew made in you know, 97, 98, whenever it was, and that kind of represents the marriage of 
immunology with mRNA. <laughs> and then the bit, so this is a very important, this is like the most important collaboration in your career. This is the collaboration that leads to the mRNA-based vaccines. Um, and the big problem or obstacle that you and Drew are trying to overcome is the immune response problem. So the body basically rejects the synthetic mRNA. Um, it's, um, in, in, it's immunogenic, causes inflammation. And so you're trying to work out how to basically mask the synthetic mRNA so that the cells accept it. We just want to understand that uh, how this immune response, where it is coming from. Mm -hmm. We, we didn't set out a goal to make a non-immunogenic RNA. We had no idea that we can, there is such such thing exists. Ah. We just want to understand that, is it the RNA I make synthetically? Is any different what is inside the cell? And the way to prove that, to isolate out from the cell, I make one in the tube, put on the cell and see that, did they respond the same way? Mm. And of course, we found that most of the RNA did induce the immune response. Our RNA, of course, we in our body, our RNA inside the cell. But when you have an injury, it comes out. You also get inflammatory reaction from that. Hmm. So after a few experiments, you and Drew discover that you, all you had to do was modify the mRNA. Uh, and the way to do that was by just adding one molecule called pseudouridine. Uridine. Uridine. <laughs> yep. Can you tell me about this discovery? So when we discovered that uh, transfer RNA, which has, uh, you know, heavily modified number of uh, modified nucleoside present, like 25% of the nucleoside in a tRNA is modified, we thought that we have to make an mRNA, see that whether we can have a translatable product which is not immunogenic. There is, we, we already knew at that point there are more than 100 modifications exist in the RNA. And we didn't know which one is important in that day RNA. Do we need all or one? And the enzymes which incorporates it, which makes the changes, is not known. So we just couldn't call up a company to send that enzyme. So we thought that we have to maybe purchase uh, these building blocks and try to see that whether we can incorporate and um, we insisted just uh, uh, purchasing kind of modification, which is not naturally present in the human body and nothing foreign, just human body present kind of modification, the concentrated anyways. We purchased 10 that was only available and uh, five of them incorporated. So we could make RNA, the other five not incorporated. And then uh, when we looked at these five, uh, we looked at these RNAs containing five different modifications. We found that um, as long as the uridine was changed in this uh, mRNA, then it was not inflammatory. And what we found is that when pseudouridine was present, we could have 10 times more protein from that RNA. So it was like you know, an icing on the cake. <laughs> right, the double whammy. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. not only was it non-inflammatory. <laughs> yeah, but also... now we have so much more protein. <laughs> right, right. That's cool. So I, I, I really wanted to ask, there was a question I really wanted to ask, which was whether you had like a causal hypothesis 
as to whether pseudouridine would work or whether you were just kind of spraying and praying and you discovered it by trial and error? Um, so you know that uh, <laughs> you have to understand that when you have uh, RNA from the DNA, there are hydrogen bonding sequence information, the, the sequence order, you know, that you have a hydrogen bonding needed. When you have an RNA and it reads by the tRNA, again, you have a certain interaction between the messenger RNA and the tRNA. And then you have to make sure that when we made the mRNA, those which require to make this interaction is not blocked by different modification. So that um, it was obvious that uh, only those which we couldn't synthesize RNA, is the reason is because this uh, bonding couldn't form. And uh, so that um, uh, we expected that uh, all of them, what we could make, could be translatable. And uh, so it was um, uh, expected that all of them would be translated. It was surprised that two of them would not, we couldn't make any protein from it. Hmm. And uh, uh, so... You have to understand that we changed all of the um, uh, nucleoside in those mRNA. And in naturally, actually, we learned 10 years later, our messenger RNA also has pseudouridine. We just uh, didn't know at that time. In uh, 2002, 2003, we didn't know. 2014, they described and they could identify because the pseudouridine and the uridine is actually the same mole weight. The base is both of them is uracil. Only the link, how it's the base linked to the sugar is different. Uh -huh. So very similar. And they couldn't identify because the weight was the same. I see. I see. Okay. So this discovery was published in a paper in 2005, which is now a very famous paper. But the, the kind of reaction from the scientific community was lukewarm so that uh, when we first wanted to publish in Nature, that we also included the translation. But then uh, we reorganized because they rejected immediately. They said that it is an incremental improvement. And um, I had to look up the word incremental. I didn't know. <laughs> you know, I started to learn English when I was 18 and that incremental was not part of it. And... Uh, and then uh, we took out the translation part and then we just had the immunological part. And the translation part we published in 2008 because by that time we generated data in animals. We demonstrated that in animals also is not immunogenic the RNA. We demonstrated it can be translated there. So we put more data on it. But uh, in 2005, uh, Drew, who is, is a very quiet and... Uh, a person, he he told me that our telephone will ring uh -huh. and people will call us and then, but nobody called. <laughs> <laughs> I I get too, he, he, he said that we will be invited to give talks and other things, but we get two invitation um, yeah, 2006. Right. And then fast forwarding 2013, you give a lecture, you meet the founder and CEO of BioNTech at the lecture, he offers you a job. <laughs> you start at BioNTech. Uh, not long after that, so about 2015, Pfizer and BioNTech partner to try and make... 18. Ah, uh, uh, right. Okay. So, yes, sorry. So 2018, 
they they signed the partnership to collaborate on making an mRNA-based flu vaccine. And were you directly working on that mRNA-based flu vaccine? Yes, on a, on a, a collaboration with Pfizer and signing the agreement here in uh, Pearl River mm-hmm. in, uh, in New York uh, State. We were there and um, and because uh, I presented there also the modified nucleoside, because my colleagues here, Norbert Party, Drew Weissman, they already working on formulation and uh, getting uh, better and better data so that um, I was um, involved uh, and try to help that project. Mm-hmm. And the way that partnership works is, is BioNTech does the the science um, and Pfizer does the manufacturing and distribution. Oh, and they did also, you know, it's collaboration science. It was, right. you know, that we will hand over the production and whatnot. And mm-hmm. So it was, um, you know, we met the scientists there. They did experiments also, you know, animal experiments. And yeah, yeah. so it was uh, such, such way. I have some specific questions about, how mRNA technology works. But actually before those, I, I wanted to ask about this this incredible partnership with Drew. So I've, I've heard Drew say in um, some interviews I was watching in preparation for this that um, it was the it was kind of your interaction, the chemistry you had that, that made the project work. Um, and, you know, without each other's knowledge, the technology might have taken like another five, ten years to develop, if at all. Um, and so your, your interaction is what helped kind of push the field forward. I'm really interested in the idea of partnerships. There are some obviously some famous scientific partnerships that came before yours with Drew. You know, Watson and Crick <laughs> comes to mind. I was wondering, so... You and you and Drew couldn't get funding uh, in the early days of your your partnership, so you couldn't add more people to the team. Was that a blessing rather than a curse? Because it meant that you could only work together as a pair, and maybe there's something more productive about pairs. You know, because we couldn't play the movie to see that what would happen if right. we would have yeah. money. What would happen if they don't kick me out, <laughs> you know, from cardiology and so on. Or, you know, we we don't know that if more people would work on it, that whether we could advance faster and better mm. or whether it would be more destruction or different direction. But, um, you know, um, when we looked at the data, Drew just gets so... Uh, excited as I was and you know we cut each other words whereas you know he's very quiet but then no maybe maybe this is this way we should do that you know that and uh, also when we were working um, you know he keep submitting grants and for using as a vaccine I was submitting grants for therapeutic purposes and um, you know in the middle of the night you know just email him something about and he responded because three o'clock he was still up and he's also <laughs> working. And, and you feel that, you know, we try to do something together. And, uh, and, um, uh, and immediately when we looked at, like, looked at the data that uh, modification is important, if we don't have modification, we have a lot of interferon induced. You know, he as a physician think differently. 
and you think about, oh, maybe the lupus patient, maybe maybe they don't have modification, and then immediately goes out, gets samples from lupus patient, and we try to isolate back the RNA, see that whether their RNA is not modified. So, so you know, his mind is a different direction, and I am as a basic scientist, I. You know, I add to that part <laughs> to the story, and and so it, and uh, and you have to respect uh, your uh, colleagues. You know that the same way, and then come together to develop something and and get excited. And so it is, yeah, it is important. Although you know, we never work even in the same department, not mm. in the same building, na- neighboring building. Mm. But uh, you know, we we did a, a great work together. Mm. Some specific questions about how mRNA technology works. Could you just explain how mRNA vaccines work? So, mRNA vaccine, the mRNA, we did not invent it. Nature invented, and actually, it was invented for the pathogens. The um, virus has uh, 29 different uh, protein encoding sequences. Now that uh, we are selecting just one, and the, uh, and actually the virus also contains mRNA, so that we're just selecting one of the 29 uh, protein coding sequence, and this we are using to as a vaccine. Why? Because it calls for a protein which is on the surface of the virus, and that could be recognized by the immune system and can uh, neutralize it, eliminate that kind of virus. So actually, instead of, uh, you know, like uh, old time, that when they try to attenuate the virus, we are just selecting, eliminating all others, just selecting the critical uh, RNA part, which can code for the protein that can be neutralized. I don't know whether it was. Good. That was perfect. <laughs> no, no, that was perfect. Thank you. Something that, like, I guess this is more of a kind of historical or sociological mm-hmm. question about the community of researchers, but something that's been puzzling me is, you know, if we go back to that central dogma of molecular biology, that mm-hmm. DNA makes RNA, which makes protein, you've essentially got three kind of playgrounds there to experiment with for therapeutics, although. I'm sure that's simplifying it because it's not as if the opportunities within each of those three are necessarily uh, equal. But it's fair to say that you know one of at least one of the big playgrounds is is RNA, and and moreover, there's something very intuitive about using mRNA to develop vaccines because. Like conceptually, it's almost like the mirror image of how a virus works. And so because the virus hijacks cells using mRNA and then and then replicates. Um, and so I, like I get that the immune response problem seemed really difficult, maybe intractable, but the history of science is just like filled with problems that seemed intractable. Um, and so maybe there was only like a really small chance of solving that problem but given that the payoff was so large like the the positive benefits that could come from it were so large like surely in expected value terms like if you multiply that very small probability by the massive positive benefit 
it was still worth dedicating a lot of research to. So like what what's the answer here? Like why why were people so dismissive, so skeptical? Um, was it like that academia and the funding system <clears throat> distorted the incentives of other scientists? Or or did did RNA just genuinely seem like a delusional thing to be working on? Like why were people so skeptical? I don't understand. Skeptic, uh, vaccine skeptic, or skeptic about the mRNA possibility to explore. The mRNA possibility to explore. Um, I have to say, Joe, that uh, recently more paper is about me than I ever published. And those are trying to identify why I never get the money, why they didn't give this uh, proposal money. And, um, and one interesting thing was uh, published about that there is a central where is the money, the fame, the most likely that your uh, proposal get funded because this is the, the most favorable um, uh, topic. Maybe today the RNA is. If you are working with mRNA, maybe that's the central there. And then there are people in the periphery that um, they don't have, there is no fame, there is no money, no nothing there. You know, the only thing is the periphery is the freedom. You can do what you like to do, what you feel that it is important. And um, so um, that's what proposal is that um, why they should give me a money and they should question that. She came from a university nobody knew about. She never had a mentor who was famous. And somehow this gravitates always the same people, same circle. They get published there, they get the money. And, and that's another explanation is that, um, you mm-hmm. know, was not... Uh, famous enough <laughs> or didn't have anybody who would, um, you know, uh, support me on a way that somebody is famous and, and well-established scientist stand behind and says, oh, look at this, good. You know, our paper had to be discovered by scientists at uh, Harvard in 2011. They published, that's what people started to pay attention, <laughs> you know, when they used to generate uh, uh, um, induce pluripotent cells, wow. stem cells. Yeah. So the idea is sort of maybe difficult to evaluate or it seems a bit crazy and so then people need to, I guess, look at your background or your pedigree to decide whether to work One thing is, for example, I was not faculty. <laughs> and, hmm. the, and the other thing is that, uh, you know, those who are evaluating, those already have big lab to run, to write the papers, and they have like, um, I don't know, 10 or 10 grants and they read it, they, they have limited time. And then when they see something which they similar what they are doing and those people who evaluate who already get money, mm-hmm. that's why I always get the same kind of field, the money, because it reads quickly and says, oh, oh, that's interesting, this makes sense. Because they immediately understand because they are on the field. And if something comes out so uh, unusual, you know, they just can stand behind one proposal and then that would be which they understand quickly because yeah. this is similar to what they are doing. Mm. I do have some questions about how we can improve science, but mm. I, I, as I said, I'll, I'll save those to the end because I want to come back to the 
object level questions about mRNA technology. So something that I've been thinking about, which which I think, I mean, as you know, is very important is the delivery mechanism. And so we use polar lipid nanoparticles to, or lipid nanoparticles uh, to, to deliver the mRNA into the cell. Um, and they, they're quite like a crude delivery mechanism. So I was wondering whether there are, there are ways of delivering mRNA without polar lipid nanoparticles. Like, can we get delivery mechanisms to be more targeted? Could you use antibodies, which are more direct, um, or like Galnax, which don't hurt the liver? So the lipid nanoparticles actually contains four different uh, components, lipids. And um, one of the components is actually the adjuvant for the vaccine. So they are not inert, just wrapping material. They have function also. And um, uh, not only lipid nanoparticles, there are other uh, uh, lipoplexes are used, for example, what we use for uh, cancer therapy, for vaccines, as well as we use for polarization induction. Then you don't have these uh, kind of components. You have different kind of lipids in it. And uh, when you deliver, IV injected goes to the spleen or in the other case, you know, that it could lipid nanoparticle goes to the liver or if it is uh, inject locally to uh, intramuscularly, most of the time is uh, uh, macrophages and other immune cells will pick it up because that's their role to pick up things. Mm. And, um, and of course, you can... Uh, um, deliver an RNA by a targeted way because if it is uh, delivering to the wound, you just uh, put on the surface. You can deliver, um, of course, you try to uh, reach certain cell types and um, or certain organ, and then for this, uh, you need uh, some targeting. And, uh, of course, uh, uh, there are... Uh, publications about that using antibody to target that um, uh, particles, but, you know, you cannot freeze them together or you cannot, you have to create at that side because you have the particle frozen and then you put the antibody. If you freeze the antibody, you know, they mix up and then they won't function. So there are uh, technical uh, hurdles there, but... Um, uh, you can also put on the surface, and they did uh, actually uh, a ligand, which uh, you are targeting the cell, which has the receptor. And when the ligand reaches the receptor, that it takes in the whole cargo together with the RNA. And so there are different tricks uh, uh, what people are using. And this, uh, you know, is a, a very intensive field right now that mm -hmm. uh, people try to improve uh, delivery methods to reach certain uh, places. So one of them is the bone marrow because um, uh, editing there certain uh, for certain diseases like uh, sickle cell anemia or, or uh, others maybe is uh, critical to reach mm. that or for um, uh, treating HIV patient. Which new potential delivery method are you most excited about? I, I mean... <clears throat> And these, these all, the targeted one is uh, a different way to target uh, is uh, very important and very um, intensively used right now. And um, I am also interested to see when it is not used as a vaccine, as a therapeutics. 
And uh, some of the therapeutics, when it codes for uh, editing enzyme, it will be uh, using for uh, gene therapy or uh, using um, like what uh, I uh, also worked at uh, BioNTech when the messenger RNA codes for cytokines and uh, we inject it to the tumors and then making a cold tumor hot so that all of the immune cells will run there and recognize which kind of uh, uh, signal which kind of uh, uh, epitope they have to look for and when they circulate they can find uh, uh, already distantly located tumors and they can eliminate that this is clinical trial ongoing with Sanofi. Once you've got messenger RNA that's been delivered into a ribosome that's been turned into a protein that's really only like the beginning of the story because you still need to consider the protein's tertiary structure and as you know, Kati, if the protein's folded in a certain way, it may or may not be able to interact with a particular receptor. And so post-translational modifications are really important in regulating a protein's function. Certain amino acids can have a phosphate group added to them. That can have a big effect on protein. It can become linear rather than bent. Sugars can also be added and affect the protein's function. So the way in which the protein is decorated uh, is important to how it goes on to function. And so my question is like, once you've decided, say with the coronavirus vaccine, once you've decided to deliver the spike protein into the cells, how do you, how did you think about engineering it so that the spike protein would be folded in the correct way? and presented to the cells in the correct way? Because it, obviously if it wasn't folded in the right way, it, you know, maybe our immune system wouldn't have produced antibodies that were the exact right fit for the virus. Um, I, I was not participating in uh, generating the uh, corona vaccine, mm. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, the cells knows how to uh, do this kind of uh, uh, decoration. It is interesting what you are saying, because at the beginning... So when our first project was using erythropoietin, we tried mm -hmm. to show the biological effect. Erythropoietin is made by kidney cells. Mm -hmm. But of course, we injected the mRNA to the muscle or sub or to the skin. A protein is made. And the, the erythropoietin, half of the weight is sugar. So, and it can function. Only those sugars are there. And uh, interestingly... It didn't matter where we injected and where this uh, mRNA was translated. We always had functional protein. So the cells, uh, even if they normally not making that kind of protein, they know what to do. There are very unique cases where really you need a certain chaperone present in the cell to make it the fold properly, but it's very, very rare. So any cell can do and uh, when they um, was made for the vaccines, of course, in that case, a uh, big advantage was that already knowing certain amino acid change is required to have the conformation. And, and um, so that was incorporated in the vaccines. And, uh, and when you inject, the cell knows what to do because certain amino acid presence will say that what kind of sugar, what kind of modification is had to be happened there. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, because we are mammalian, you know, and the, it was a problem when they tried to make a, 
uh, human protein in the bacteria because they don't glycosylate. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't make a certain recombinant protein in in the bacteria. And uh, when we are talking about, you know, the therapy, you mentioned that sometimes, you know, the protein or you can deliver the protein, deliver the RNA or DNA. You have to understand that the protein therapy is only working for extracellular protein. If you want the protein in your nuclei, and that's what would be, should be there. If you just inject that protein, it never find that way. How we would know that where to go? Mm. Then, but then when you deliver the mRNA, it can have the signal on it to where to go. So it had to be translated inside the cell. So that opens up that with RNA, not just you can replace all of these, uh, most of this protein therapy, which is very expensive because you had to figure out how to modify the protein and purify. And that's why mm. all of the recombinant protein product antibodies are very expensive. With the RNA, you don't have you no need that. You just deliver the RNA, the cell will know how to decorate, how to do those things. You don't have to purify. Yeah? But you can also uh, generate intracellular proteins, which will be work inside the cell. Of course, for that one, you have to reach that specific cells, that neurons or that uh, heart cells or whatever cells. And that's the challenge. But otherwise, for targeting, if you have just the extracellular protein, you don't need target. Any cell can do. Mm. I see. I guess um, that that actually raises one of the benefits of, of RNA-based therapies. It can do both intra and extracellular stuff. Yes. Yeah. Protein you can generate. Both. Yeah. Yeah. I know you didn't work directly on the COVID vaccines, but I guess I just had some, like coming to COVID now, mm. some questions about about that. So COVID comes around in, in 2020. Scientists sequenced the coronavirus's genome in January. Um, Pfizer and BioNTech uh, and Moderna vaccines enter clinical testing in April of 2020. So like very shortly thereafter. Um, The the vaccines start going into the arms of patients in December 2020. Um, I guess there may be like a couple of reasons why this could happen so rapidly. One is just like the nature of mRNA technology mm-hmm. itself. Um, but the other is that you'd already been working on that mRNA-based flu vaccine from about 2018. And mm-hmm. so there was like a, almost like a template that they could just redeploy for Got COVID. It. Got it. Yeah. So uh, a few, uh, I guess a few questions and, and like feel free to pass on any of these if you, if you just don't feel like you have the best kind of, you're like well positioned to answer them. But um why, so why do vaccines normally take so long to be developed? Uh, you can develop a vaccine, but if there is no virus around, that it is difficult to evaluate. Yeah. So that's what happened several times already, you know, that they develop a vaccine and, uh, you know, uh, you have to test. Mm-hmm. And then if, uh, if the virus disappears, then you cannot measure that how good your vaccine is. And um, you know that the beginning uh, vaccine was developed by the virus was passaging, passaging until it was uh, less uh, dangerous, you know, Mm. and still could generate immune response. And uh, so it was um, technically uh, such and later started, you know, to get this uh, where viral protein was delivered 
which was generated as recombinant protein together with some kind of adjuvant. And again, this, uh, you know, technically also generating recombinant protein was not easy. And uh, so um, I am not an expert on this one, definitely, but that's what uh, I, I can see that uh, major reason. Mm. So there, there are currently about three variants of COVID circulating. There are like two previous variants which are functionally extinct. If there are three variants circulating, does that mean you can only get sick three times at the moment? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I have to say that when I have any kind of uh, vaccine-related questions, I ask uh, Drew Weissman. Uh-huh. And um, I, I, he said that, you know, if we wouldn't have new variants, uh, we would be fine. And uh, he also told me that uh, none of the vaccine is, uh, you know, 100% protective. You, was, you, you get, you know, you don't get uh, um, a different kind of uh, infection because the virus is not around. Mm-hmm. But if it would be around, you might get, mm-hmm. even if you would vaccinate it. So that this is just thinking that, oh, we don't get any of these disease. Yeah, because the, you know, the pathogen is not around. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I don't know that uh, if, uh, you know, definitely um, when a messenger RNA coding for this spike protein is injected and uh, repeatedly they found is that um, uh, uh, repertoire of antibodies increasing. So different part of the spike protein is recognized by antibodies and you generate those. So it is why even if you get a new variants that you, you know, it is not deadly for those who get uh, vaccinated already. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why, why aren't the current mRNA COVID vaccines, why don't they seem to be infection blocking? Again, I mentioned that I'm not an expert. My understanding is that when you have in your blood high level of antibodies, because you just get vaccinated, then actually in in your uh, mucus uh, and also in the milk, they can show. They people send me um, uh, pictures showing that uh, in their milk they can see detect antibodies, so that uh, you will have antibodies in other uh, area. And then when you already you know the antibodies level dropping, then you might have less in your uh, mucus or in in the nose and other places to capture it. So, mm-hmm. but um, I, again, better if you don't use these things because I am not an expert. Okay. And I don't try to pretend. I don't know the viruses. I I left uh, BioNTech because uh, you know I want to concentrate on something which. Excited me for many years. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Okay, let's go. <laughs> let's uh, so we'll, we'll finish on COVID. So I, I really want to ask you about oh. meta scientific issues. So thinking about how we can improve how science is done, and we've spoken about some of the issues mm. and how they kind of intersect with your own personal story. Generally. There are a lot of problems, like one of them, which is relevant here, is that very talented scientists need just a lot of luck. They have to be in the right university at the right time. 
to get grants and set themselves up with a faculty position. And then there's like a chicken and egg problem where you need grants to get the faculty position, but then the faculty position helps with the grants. You have to convince your seniors that you'll be able to bring grants in. So um, those are all challenges I'd like to discuss. But but actually, firstly, Kati, I'd like to ask, um, so you're someone very remarkable in that you just kept persisting. You maintained your optimism. You didn't let things affect you. Not only did you not let them, it's probably not even accurate to say you didn't let them affect you. You tried to reinterpret them positively and use them Mm -hmm. to drive you. Did you see any colleagues though who, who just like weren't as tenacious and who simply gave up? Like how many... Generally, how many talented scientists do you think we lose because they just feel defeated by the system and the politics of science? Yes, so definitely it's very, very... So it is not easy to be scientist, but the other field is similar. I have to say one issue is I am a woman, yeah? And then if if, uh, 1982... In Hungary, there would not be uh, rules that, uh, you know, affordable, high quality childcare where my daughter was four months old and I could leave it her there. Mm. I wouldn't be a scientist because I couldn't afford. I had to stay home. And then if you stay home for two years, then you are so out of uh, the knowledge that it is almost impossible to catch up. So there are there are many, many things, you know. We might, you didn't mention the women issue, but that's mm. that's what you can see that more uh, female uh, uh, students at the universities, but, uh, you know, that uh, position when they have a uh, faculty position, they the number is dropping relative to the men. And then when they have children and the same time they should, uh, you know, mm. push their career is, is difficult. So... But even for men would be good if uh, affordable childcare would be there because, uh, you know, they also take part of childcare and then uh, their responsibility, <clears throat> their responsibility, you know, to put bread on the table and then they have to give up uh, sometimes with this uh, um, field. Uh, interestingly, in uh, Drew Weissman's lab was a, a student and he wanted to be scientist, but when he realized that what happened to me and, you know, in medical field, you have to bring in the money. It's not in other field, but in a medical science, you have to, as a scientist, you have to cover your salary. And, uh, and he decided that he will be MD, PhD, because as a doctor still, he can function and help the family. So, so that's... Um, uh, difficulties in in uh, our field to to be scientists and uh, definitely um, men will give up because you know they have to if they don't get enough money then you know they cannot support their family mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, I have to say that um, uh, I don't have hobbies my hobby is science so that's uh, also easy that I don't get too much money, you know, as a salary. And, but that's enough. We can get by. Mm. And 
but how uh, could improve how we could see that something is a good idea is um, is difficult because uh, you know there are could be great idea, but I don't have expertise on it. Just like we talk about viruses. I, I did a lot of work with viruses, but still I wouldn't say that I am expert on it. And to judge other work, that whether it is reasonable or not. So when people ask me many times, I, I say that, um, you know, I would be the last person to tell you that this is not feasible <laughs> because because so many times I heard that. So that... I, I don't have enough information, but the people would not acknowledge that, you know, they would mm. make judgment and say, no, it's not good. Mm. And uh, yeah, so people think that, you know, if they would give everybody for their idea to develop some money, then if uh, from thousand people, one would come up with something would be already worse. And, and you know, that... Um, we know that is a failure is always there. I mean, uh, this is why we call it not, I am not a searcher. It, I am a researcher, research, <laughs> because re, re, redoing, retesting, you know, I like that. Word. <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, you know, to make sure that things happen on that way. And then for me, Although it is a basic science, but from day one, when I started to work, uh, even if the Fisher Institute to understand that how the food we give to the fish would influence the fat and, and then work with uh, Yano in uh, developing uh, antiviral compounding. So there was always there the usefulness. It will be good for something, you know. And that was the same when I was here at Penn, when we could deliver the cell, the RNA, and we could express the protein. Oh, it will be good for some cell therapy and thinking, oh, maybe for bone transplantation, maybe maybe even older people can give bone marrow because mm -hmm. now that we can extend the tip of the chromosome. And, and so always it was in my mind that, oh, usefulness. And now that people are doing it with mRNA, I am so happy because actually I also tested that mm -hmm. and many ideas which I have. So that now that uh, many people are trying, more money is coming to the RNA field, I am sure that many new products will be developed. Mm. And uh, because uh, um, even if the final product would be a protein, but accelerates the search, the research, the development of a product, because with RNA, it is so easy. If I have an, we are here, you know, I have a template, actually without PCR also, you can have uh, in vitro transcription, so you can have a genes and plasmid, and then you can make an RNA. I mean, it takes, yeah, uh, 30 minutes, you already have the RNA. I put on the cell, 10 minutes later, I can see the protein. Mm. That's unbelievable, powerful to think that how quickly you can do anything. And then you see the outcome. Mm. And um, so I am very optimistic of the, about the future because it will um, accelerate the science, the discoveries, and the, the medicine should be cheap also. Because the yeah. RNA is cheap to make. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's the magic. And many, many good things about it. Okay, so putting aside simply giving everything more money, how should we reform how the biosciences are funded? So, if you could wave a magic wand and change 
how the biosciences were funded, what would you do? But but it can't just be giving more money. <laughs> I, I I don't know. I don't know that what sh- what should be done. I don't know. But do you have any opinions it, based it on just, your experience? Uh, so many things is uh, changing how it happened before. I was just reading yesterday that no more we can um, review every paper which get published. There is not enough people who would do that, critically reading something that it was a peer-reviewed paper. No, <laughs> there is not enough scientists. The scientists had to do the research. They, they don't have time to zillions of paper to read. It is, it is everything is um, difficult. So that there are, you know, uh, uh, venture capitalists, you know, who are risking their money and believing that uh, some ideas is good. But I, 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 I don't know. Many things right now is uh, going to produce. I would bet that it won't work, but I wouldn't say. Mm. I, I don't know. I don't know that uh, how, how you should, even if uh, you would say more money will be there, that uh, what should be done? Um, I don't know. There's an interesting question about ego. So ego has mm-hmm. kind of been a theme of this conversation. <laughs> you're, I, I, you know, I get the sense that you're not someone who's driven by <laughs> ego or seeking recognition, mm-hmm. but obviously many scientists are. And I wonder whether we view that as a problem or potentially like an opportunity that we should harness. So do you think we should be celebrating scientists more? I have to say that uh, in um, at the Gardner Award uh, ceremonies, part of it was that I had to talk to high school students. There were 300 of them, and uh, each of them could name a hockey player. But when I asked just one living Canadian scientist, they could name. There was no name. They couldn't. So one question is why? Why we don't know about uh, all of these discoveries? All of the scientists discovering things. In the morning, people are taking their pills, saving their life. They never ask, who come up with who's saving my life? Who is this person I want to know? You know, James Allison and uh, Honjo, they they did, uh, you know, this checkpoint inhibitors. These scientists, you know, they get the Nobel Prize for it. But do you know that uh, the people who are getting and the... with lung cancer and surviving and other cancer, they get this checkpoint inhibitors that they would know. These are the guys. They saved my life. No. And uh, when I ask uh, um, uh, reporters, why you are not writing about them? Why, why about the celebrities? Why it is more important that uh, who is breaking up or marrying or whatnot, you know, famous they want the, they, this is what the people want to hear. But I said that they read about because that's what you are writing. You write about the, the science. The science could be so important. You know, r- looking at the um, Super Bowl and running with the ball, running at the jail and uh, getting the example or some result is get just ex- is, uh, at, as excited. And uh, why we don't know about all of these discoveries, uh, what is happening in these days. And, and um, my, uh, you know, my daughter was uh, like checked out for this uh, non-invasive uh, um, uh, 
pregnancy tests when they can identify from her blood that whether her child is has the uh, Down syndrome. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I met the guy, Dennis Lowe, we get the Lasker Award together. You know, he, he discovered this is so important thing. Do you know that the people who are getting this test so non-invasively, they appreciate, do they, do they know about him? Who, where we should start this? You know, I will, in April, I get the... Um, um, Breakthrough Prize, which is uh, supposed to be, you know, the um, Oscar uh, of science because, you know, red carpet events. But um, yes, I I think, uh, you know, should the scientists should be recognized, uh, the achievement and the people's interest, uh, you know, writing about or we are talking about right today. So you are doing your part. <laughs> That uh, so that they would know what what did they discovered? Yeah, and is that 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 will then incentivize more brilliant people to become scientists? Exactly. Yeah. So so it, I mean I guess that kind of implies that that like ego is a useful thing because we're kind of playing to their <laughs> egos. <laughs> yes, of course you have to have the desire, but um, when it gets uh, the goal to be recognized, and I think that the goal should be that you should discover and understand and then present and then uh, get some solution for for diseases or something. And that's so many diseases. We don't even know that how, how it is, what is the reason and the cause for those uh, symptoms. And uh, without it, we, we, can, we don't know how to treat so that uh, we need more scientists and, uh, and more women. Because the women think differently, you know, they multitasking and they, and we need all of the young mind to come. And then I can see that uh, less and less uh, people want to come to science. Mm. They want to be, I don't know, influencer or something. Mm. Ego is the number one thing, yes. which uh, uh, each, I personally, I never uh, had that desire to be recognized. I, I Again, I can imagine how people could be, you know, doing all of this work and then they are not recognized. They get go crazy. But this uh, Shia thing, who cares? I, I thought, yeah, 100 years, nobody knows I ever existed. I am doing this. I can do that. And, and I not crave that. But there are people who are not like that. Mm. And they, they are not, they are miserable. Yeah. So anyway, and for me also, I was so on on the other side, you know, being very humble, the very the background, you know, isn't nobody. I mean, coming to America, you could imagine I had no classmate. I have not a single person I ever seen in my life who would be here, and there is no credit card. Mm. That's what uh, makes uh, the immigrant great, because then. No matter what, I have to survive. Mm. I have my family here with me. I get them here and then what we will do. Mm. Yeah? Mm. And then you will be fierceless. You know? mm. And uh, you are, because the whole thing is gambling coming here with that kind of, even $1,000 is not much. Mm. You understand? So mm. that it completely changes you. Because people ask, why you couldn't do this in Hungary? 
Can you imagine? I was working nine months in, in Bethesda and I had no street address. I slept under the, uh, in the office under the desk. We couldn't afford to leave two different places. We didn't live in this house. We just rented. But my daughter went to school here and I am 200 miles away and weekly uh, coming and going. Do you think in Hungary I would do that? No, I would ask my somebody, classmate, some, somebody to help me out. But here was nobody. Mm. Yeah. It's a difficult thing being an immigrant, but so many people have become so successful because you don't have a choice. Because yeah. uh, hardship is uh, forming yeah. your character much better than than when somebody is yeah. uh, arranging for you to walk. Because you don't learn how to, and you appreciate more everything what you have yeah. than if it is given to you. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. They yeah. accepted me. Okay. I got this. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. My last meta-scientific question. <laughs> so as we've discussed, you and Drew Weissman met at a photocopier, which is like pretty close to the classic water cooler <laughs> conversation just with a different machine. Has the COVID-induced shift to working from home reduced the number of those serendipitous conversations? Is there a chance that you and Drew may never have collaborated if you'd both been working from home? And um, what what has been the net impact of working from home on scientific research? Do you think overall it's a positive or a negative? Uh, that is definitely important that scientists should talk to each other. You know, that's why I go to the meetings and so on. And uh, some uh, pharmaceutical company, in they don't let the, from take out the coffee from the cafeteria. You have to drink there. And meanwhile, you are drinking, talking to colleagues and you cannot go back to your office and just drink that coffee next to your computer. You have to talk to somebody. So that uh, important, of course, important. I told you that all of, all of what we try to do with uh, Elliot Barnett and with uh, David Langer, you know, that he was telling me about the patient and what uh, is causing it. And then I was telling, you know, about what, RNA I can do and how it would influence what RNA would be the best. And uh, so that conversation is leading to, you know, new discoveries and uh, new treatment. Mm -hmm. And yes, of course, it is important. It is good uh, to time to time, you know, to concentrate and stay home and, uh, and think about and read and do other things. But Definitely. I, I also mentioned that um, I worked at the bench and I found that the working at the bench is also helpful. Many of the scientists, you know, I was 58 working still, pouring the gel and so many things came to my mind when I was in the middle of the experiment, you know, thinking about what this molecule is doing and what could be the outcome and maybe the other outcome will be and how to explain it. And so it is... I enjoyed. And then, of course, many technical things I improved. And so it is, I found uh, beneficial for me to work with my hands for that long. Some questions about the future, just to finish. Mm -hmm. Do you predict that pretty much all vaccines will move over to mRNA technology? Um, uh, you have to understand that the RNA goes for a protein. And uh, many bacterial vaccine, you know, the bacterial surface is sugar, complex sugar. So that um, might be a different situation. Ah, 
Yeah. But the intracellular bacteria, you know, like the tuberculosis and others, is it will be similar like in a cancer vaccine because you are uh, you have to generate cellular immunity. A cell, a T cell, had to recognize the infected cell, just like this uh, T cell had to recognize the mutated uh, cancer cell. Yeah. But um, you know we. we we didn't talk about like um, at Penn when they introduced me. They usually uh, said that, did you know Kati's daughter is Olympic champion? The people didn't say, did you know Kati works with mRNA? Nobody said that. <laughs> I was the famous mother, <laughs> mom. I was the mother of Susan Francia. And, um, and then, you know, we went to this uh, Olympic Games and everywhere I was introduced She's Susan's mom. Now that I am getting the awards, my daughter is coming with me, and now she's recognized she's Kati's daughter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Now it is changed. And yeah. now she works for a company, actually, Trilink, which produces the cap part of the mRNA. Ah. And now she's bragging always that her mother is me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so things change. They do, they do, yeah. That's so funny. Um, so, so currently, Moderna, BioNTech w- are working on mRNA-based vaccines for a range of different things, including HIV, Zika, a few kinds of cancer. There's the flu one, malaria, genital herpes, tuberculosis, food allergies, sickle cell anemia, uh, other autoimmune diseases. Um, I'm interested in the cancer vaccines in, in particular. Um, h- how does that work and what's the timeline on those? Like when when do you think we could expect those? I am not expert on, on this one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You have to understand that uh, to make a vaccine against a pathogen like a virus, you need antibody. The antibody recognizes a protein on a particular surface, yeah? Mm-hmm. Now that when this uh, pathogen enters inside the cell, the antibodies, hmm, I cannot see it. You need cellular immunity. The cellular immunity, those T cells, one of them which can make cytokines and which recognize some kind of thing on a, uh, presented by these infected cells showing a little part of the virus up, and then that T cells secrete things, come here, come here, problems. And then there are the killer cells are coming in and they kill. Yeah? So this is two type of T cells and eliminate. When you have a cancer, most of the time you don't have any protein put on the surface. You don't need antibody. The antibody is not just in some case is uh, you have a specific protein, but most of the case, the cell is just um, maybe, you know, have an extra chromosome and then it just divide, divide, divide. And then it cannot fit in the bone marrow and they come out and those are immature cells. And so this different kind of cancer, there is not even mutation in it. So what the hell could, how the immune cells would recognize that it is something wrong? Yeah. Mm. So, but when there is a mutation, then maybe they present something and then the, the T-cells recognize that it is something not what I'm supposed to see. 
You know that how the immune system works, that how you, from your thymus, uh, um, the, the cells are coming out, which had the different uh, uh, receptors. And then here in your thymus, is my niscon, I am too old, but you know, they are, have to go through on, on that, like on a map, mat. And then in your thymus, every protein in Let's your make body. Sure you're in the Every yeah. protein in your body, even which is in your brain, is expressed. Mm. And if your T cell is coming and stick to it, they cannot come out. They die. And those who cannot stick to anything, they come out sitting in your lymph nodes and waiting for information. And these dendritic cells, they are going around, hum, 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 eating things, uh, always some debris. And then on their way, stop by at the lymph nodes. T cells sitting there, and then this dendritic cells haven't seen any danger, so it's presenting things on their surface and show, and then these T cells has the receptor, show them that if you see this, you have to tolerate because this is everything is normal. Go out, you know, and then picks up something and big bang, you know, the stimulant is there and says this is danger. That the cells next time uh, runs to the uh, lymph node. The T cells are sitting there and they said, guys, you know, <laughs> that's dangerous, you, you, whatever. And then what, what these T cells is recognizing and trying that whether they can, their T cell receptor fits to this uh, little epitope when this MHC is hold up. And when it fits, this, they get this thing. Now you have to divide, divide, divide. Then you start to see your lymph node is getting big. That's the good news. You found your pathogen yeah. <laughs> will be fighted because T cells found, yeah? Yeah. And then these T cells divide, divide and running out and see that where we can see this, this kind of thing that we can bind. And they find those, you know, infected cells and then they start to eliminate. This is, this is in space how all in your body happens. Hmm. That's simple. <laughs> wow. What, what, at the moment, what's the biggest constraint on developing mRNA vaccines? As you could see, they started to work on, like, there is HIV. Mm. Huh? Moderna has to program for that. But you have to know that the HIV is a virus which is covered with sugar, covering so, so the antibody can see the protein, but it's covered. And one part is not. And that is the part which is not important constantly mutate. So tricking and uh, exhausting the immune response. Mm. So that's uh, the pathogen uh, is very critical. This um, uh, SARS-CoV-2, this, this virus was a simple one, mm. easy. HIV, you know, working uh, 20, more than 20 years to develop vaccine is difficult mm. because the pathogen is very tricky. Mm. And... Um, you can see that uh, they try to develop vaccine against um, viruses that we don't have any vaccine against. But now that you could see that both companies, Moderna and uh, BioNTech announced with Pfizer that um, they will have a vaccine against shingles. Right now, is a Shingrix is a very good vaccine, but it, in Europe it is like 800 euro or 600 euro. The vaccine is very expensive. so. Hopefully the RNA vaccine would be much cheaper. Mm. So there are, 
you know, a lot of efforts to uh, develop new vaccines or replace some of them, maybe good, but very expensive, or maybe not that good, so that you will see this trend. And of course, um, beside these uh, infectious disease vaccine, you know, the therapeutic application and more and more companies are formed. And and even the larger companies, we talk about Moderna, BioNTech, Pfizer, but uh, you know that uh, Sanofi has um, um, Translate Bio purchased that uh, RNA company. And um, there is CureVac there, which was the first one uh, established in 2000 that also worked in a vaccine with JSK. And so they are, there will be more vaccine and more protein products based on mRNA. My final two questions... What was it like getting your first COVID vaccine, knowing that that couldn't have happened without all of your efforts and all of your struggle over the years? Can you tell me that story about that moment? <laughs> yeah, so, uh, I have to say or correct you because I every time I think about all of the other scientists who who worked, of course, who, of course. who's uh, you know my my work I established on theirs, you know, and. Uh, also all of the scientists and the uh, colleagues in BioNTech and Pfizer and Moderna and everything. And um, I uh, was, uh, you know, together with Drew Weissman, we were getting the BioNTech-Pfizer vaccine. I uh, was very excited and uh, and um, I am a little bit can be emotional, and then when they we were working walking there actually to this room, they already camera set up that we will get officially this vaccine. In the other neighboring room, already were uh, giving to the healthcare workers at uh, Penn who worked in the hospital, and and then my new chairman said uh, that um, there uh, that these are the people who invented the vaccine or something like that. And and these people just started to clap. And, oh. and I was just, you know, realizing so emotional became, you know, that that was uh, was overwhelming for yeah. me. And the getting the vaccine, seeing that the needle there and then the the syringe and the seeing that the vaccine is there, and I worked in BioNTech, and very much I knew that what sequence and uh, what uh, structural elements were there because uh, um, we worked on it, my colleagues. From from day one, I went there for formulation, for example. The formulation, the lipid nanoparticle that uh, my team, we screened different formulation and that's we zeroed in with Aquitos formulation and did many, many improvement on the construct. I love that story. That makes me so happy. Last question, what are you working on at the moment and what's exciting you? Oh, I won't talk and I don't want to hope high because I could mm-hmm. be wrong. I should let you go. But um, okay, Kati, <laughs> thank you so much for everything you've done and thank you so much for your time today. It's been an honour. Oh, thank you for asking. But again, I am saying that in the name of all of those people who came before us, who work with us, you know, I am accepting that thanks in their name also, because I, I, so many times I was reading articles. I, I don't know those, those people, but I felt that I would hug them that, oh my God. They <laughs> <have>. <laughs> yes. Th- thank you to those people as well. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Kati.
All right. Thanks so much for listening. Two quick things before you go. First, for links, show notes, and the episode transcript, go to my website, thejspod.com. That's thejspod.com. And finally, if you think the conversations I'm having are worth sharing, I'd be deeply grateful if you sent this episode or the show to a friend. Message it to them, email them, drop a link in a WhatsApp group. The primary way these conversations reach more people is through my listeners sharing them. Thanks again. Until next time. Ciao.